All right, well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you have a copy of the Confession, you can open it up to chapter 10. We have successfully made it through one worship service. And we've had a good lunch, and we've had a long, warm afternoon, and now we are sufficiently rested and prepared to sit through a, a speedy, fast-paced theological lecture. And I do want to begin by just reading a passage of Scripture, just one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time that we have together to spend to give our attention to the pattern of sound words that have been handed down to us uh, from generation to generation. Lord, we pray that you'd help us. I pray that you would uh, give us the ability to pay attention to what is said. Lord, I know there's a lot here, and we won't learn it all in one pass, but I pray that we, there would at least be uh, thoughts and seeds and truths planted in our souls that we can use to study ourselves and continue on the pathway of sanctification and holiness individually and together as a church. Lord, we thank you for calling us into the fellowship of your Son. What a great pleasure it is to have personal communion with the Lord of glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So what I want to do is begin with a brief overview since it's been a couple weeks several weeks since we looked at this first paragraph of chapter 10 on effectual calling. The first paragraph gives us basically an overarching overview of the doctrine, and so what we're going to do now is do an overview of the overview. This should get everybody's blood flowing quite well. So, we saw in this paragraph... at the beginning what I call a surface level definition of effectual calling. And, and the parts of this definition are the ones who are called, the one who's doing the calling, and the call itself. And we put all of that together and we, can, we have a little bit of a definition. You'll remember that the called, it says, those whom God hath predestinated unto life. So the recipients of the effectual call are a particular number of people predestined from eternity given to the Son by the Father, and those people will certainly be brought to glory. Those chosen in eternity will be ultimately glorified. We know that because Christ has already procured their eternal redemption, and He will not fail, and His Spirit will not fail to apply the redemption that He has accomplished to them. So those are the ones who receive the effectual call in time. The caller, it says, those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. So who's the caller? The caller is God. Specifically, it is God the Father. The call itself, we saw, was an in-time call. He calls in his appointed and accepted time, and it is an effectual call. He is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. It is, and this is the reason that we use the, the phrase or the word effectual call, because this call actually produces the summons that it gives. It can only be profitable. This effectual call cannot not work. It always does the very thing that it was meant to do. It is an 
end time call, an effectual call, and then we saw the means of this call. He's pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. Those are the means. This is important because this is going to take us into these last three paragraphs. The means are the word, primarily the preached word and the spirit of God. So God, as he pleases, by his spirit takes advantage of the opportunity of the preaching of the gospel. And remember, the Spirit comes sort of from both ends. The Spirit accompanies the preacher and accompanies the Word as it's going forth from the mouth of the preacher into the ears. And the Spirit also comes around the back end to receive from within the, the hearer and actualizes within the hearer the response using the hearer's natural components. By natural, I don't mean physical, but those parts of a human being that are natural to man. Every man is body and soul. The Spirit comes and gives the ears of the body the ability to hear, the eyes watch, the brain receives information, and the soul is given the ability to receive. And that's where we went. Next, in opening up uh, what I called a supernatural description. So, so a surface level definition, I said, of the effectual call is an end time act of God the Father by means of the Spirit accompanying His Word which supernaturally actualizes the very summons it gives. The call actualizes, makes effectual the very thing that it's calling to. I think one time, or maybe a couple times last couple weeks ago, maybe last Lord's Day, I can't remember, I made a reference to the Holy Spirit and then I said it as a reference to the Spirit. And some of you probably ca caught that and began to pray about where, where it would be a good church to find with a pastor who knew his theology proper. Um, that was a mistake. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. So that was my bad. I caught that on the, on the audio. So... That's a surface level definition. So then we have to move into the, the deeper inner workings of the effectual call, the supernatural side of it. What does the Spirit do when He comes inside the believer and begins to work? And I, and I picture this like a, a, a football play because of my deep background in sports and athletics. So I'm, I'm picturing the words going forth, the pass, and it's coming, and then you also have the receiver. And the Spirit of God is working with the quarterback and with the receiver to make sure that it connects. Okay, so now we're dealing with the side of the Spirit working inside the hearer of the gospel to make it effectual. What, what is this work? While He does use our natural uh, powers, not physical only, but natural, it is a supernatural work that He does. We saw that he begins with a change of nature. God is pleased to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. The change of nature implies a change of the mind, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. A change of nature implies a change of heart, taking away their heart of stone, giving unto them a heart of flesh. A change of mind and a change of heart assumes a change of will. He renews their wills, and by His almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and that necessitates a change of direction, effectually drawing them to Christ. That's what the Spirit does, and those things we would refer to as regeneration. The Spirit works that in the hearer of the preached gospel. And then we look thirdly at a controversial distinction. He does this, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. Yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. They are not robots. They are not puppets. They are not forced. They are not coerced. They are regenerated. That's why we call it an act of grace. So if I put all that together, I could say that his effectual calling is an end-time act of God the Father by means of the Spirit accompanying His Word, 
which supernaturally actualizes the very summons it gives, transitioning one from a state of sin to a state of grace. Now I'm going to read Hodge's definition again. He calls it an exercise of the divine power upon the soul, immediate, spiritual, and supernatural, communicating a new spiritual life, and thus making a new mode of spiritual activity possible. That's spiritual life. So hopefully what I said and what he said sound similar. That's the point. One thing that we need to remember is that effectual calling contains within it or encompasses regeneration. That's what I started off with when we began this. We don't have a chapter on regeneration because regeneration falls under this larger category. Regeneration is an essential element of the effectual call. It is the thing that makes it effectual. The work of the Spirit giving us the ability to receive. So, having given that overview, these last three paragraphs, paragraphs 2, 3, and 4, go into some specific applications of that doctrine to specific groups of people. First, we have the elect in general. Then in paragraph 3, we have uh, infants and handicapped elect. That's what I'm calling them. And then in the fourth paragraph, we have the non-elect who hear the gospel. And then we have the non-elect who never hear the gospel. So then first, the application to the elect in paragraph 2. These are just a lot of the things that we saw last week. It just clarifies some of them a little better in this second paragraph. So first, there's a positive statement on the origin of the effectual call. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. It is free. Unearned undeserved. It is not coerced or forced. God is not obligated by anything outside of Himself to, to give this effectual call. It's of free and special grace. Now that might be used in reference over against the idea of common grace. Common grace, special grace. This is special salvific grace. It does not apply to all men because it's special. So there, positively, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Then it gives two negative statements on the origin of this effectual call. Not from anything at all foreseen in man. Now notice that word, foreseen. Not from anything at all foreseen in man. So here we have a, a clear denial of anything like a halls of time theology. God looked down the halls of time and saw. Some people might say that God foreknew what we would do, and so He acted based on that. Both of those statements, if, if that's what somebody believes... Those are rejections of the biblical doctrine of God. If, if you're making those statements, whether you mean it or not, you're, you're stepping in a big pile of unorthodoxy. As soon as you begin to say, He looked down the halls of time or foreknew what would happen, therefore He acted. And if I had to begin to list the, the attributes of God uh, that are rejected here, I would have to say um, infinitude, eternality, immutability, omniscience, um, aseity, independence, all of those attributes are denied as soon as somebody says, God looked down the halls of time, knew what we would do, and then did something. So, it's not from anything at all foreseen in man. It's of God's free grace. The grace of God in general, or special grace in salvation, including the effectual calling of God, cannot in any way be reckoned back or traced back to something God foreknew or foresaw in the actions of man or in the character of man because that's a denial of the definition of grace. If it's traced back to something God saw in us, it's not grace. So, to say, to make statements like God withholds grace that's improper. To, to withhold something implies that that something was owed or deserved. So you can't, God, you can't withhold grace. Grace is free. Grace is undeserved. 
So it's not from anything foreseen in man. The second negation, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with His special grace. So men add nothing to this work. Now let's just think this through. I think this is, and a lot of, a lot of this, this lesson, as I was going through it, I, I put a lot of it in question form. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to teach my children how to ask questions of, of the things that you're hearing or the, the text. Just ask, begin, start asking questions. Grill it yourself and make it answer you. So, nor from any power or agency in the creature, co-working with His special grace. So let's just ask, what power or agency in the creature might possibly begin to work with God's special grace in being effectually called out of sin and death to grace and salvation. What do we have? Say somebody says it's your intellectual powers. Okay, so you're going to use, you're going to add your knowledge to God's knowledge to help Him do something. Okay, well that, that's obviously absurd. What about your physical powers? You're going to use your physical muscles to help God do something? No. What about your will power? You're going you're to use your willpower along with God's omnipotence to bring about some supernatural work. Again, all of this is, is absurd. I think it was one of the old writers who said, you cannot will yourself out of a toothache. You, you can't go out in, in the parking lot and pick up one corner of a car. You can't use your intellectual powers to brush your teeth. These, these powers, these agencies that we might have in comparison to a work of God are uh, impotent. We can't do anything. We, we don't add anything to what God's doing. It is all of grace. Not anything foreseen. Nothing is supplied by man. It's all of grace. Now if that's not enough, then the confession begins to vindicate these statements. So let's reason this out. He calls us out of free and special grace, not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature. Then he says, or then the confession says, the creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sins and trespasses. So there's... Well, we just saw there's no power or agency in the creature co-working. Why? The creature's passive. Well, why is the creature passive? Because the creature's dead in sins and trespasses. So not only do we literally not possess any power that could cooperate with God in this work, but even if we did possess all of the powers to cooperate with God in this work, when this call comes, we're dead in sins and trespasses. This would be like Lazarus helping the Lord Jesus raise him from the dead prior to being raised from the dead. It's, again, it's absurd. There's nothing we could add because we're spiritually dead. The confession says, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Quickened, that is being raised to life, renewed, established again in a like new and improved uh, condition. That would be the new creature by the Holy Spirit. He's the one that does it. So what do we call it when the Holy Spirit quickens a person and renews them? We call that regeneration. That's the new birth. And until that work of the Spirit happens within a person, they're dead in trespasses and sins. After that work of the Spirit, quickening and renewing, that is encompassed within the effectual call, it says, speaking of that Sinner, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. He, the creature, once dead in sins, now quickened, is thereby, that is by that work of the Spirit that he just did to quicken them, thereby enabled to answer. The creature is given the ability to answer or to respond to the call and to embrace the grace. Enabled to embrace the grace. Given the ability to take for himself the grace offered and conveyed. Now notice all this language is, 
is, is very important. And, and really, it, it's every, every word in here is like a paragraph of, of systematic theology. Offered. Grace is offered. It's set forth to be taken freely. Take this grace in the effectual call. Take this grace. The preacher preaches the gospel. Take this grace. Christ is saying, take the grace. But it's also conveyed communicated in the call itself, transferred over to the hearer. Grace comes. Enabled to answer the call and embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. What is it? The effectual call. The effectual call offers grace. The effectual call conveys grace. The effectual call of God is effectual. It conveys grace. It communicates grace to the called one. In the call, grace is offered and communicated. In the call, the Spirit enables a person to receive the grace communicated. You see how this is all of grace. God is doing this work. There are human agents. There is the public, an external call of the gospel. There is the hearer who must have the word come into their ear holes and go into their brain and, and make sense of the language. All of that's happening. And the Spirit makes those things work in a supernatural and spiritual way to receive the grace. And that by no less power than that which raised up Christ from the dead. So all of that, of the enabling work of God, acting upon the sinner, all of that comes to us and it's no less power than that which raised Christ from the dead. Again, the thought that we would add anything to that work, that we would contribute anything in that supernatural power of God is ridiculous. So then we have the Scripture references. I'm just going to walk through these and just see if the Scriptures, and these are not meant to be the... These are just proofs to vindicate, vindicate the several statements that were made. But what we're trying to find out is, do the Scriptures themselves bear the weight of the paragraph we just read? And again, we're going to do what, I, what I'm calling, we're going to catechize these texts. We're going to read them and then we're going to start asking questions of the text itself. So the first one was 2 Timothy 1.9. Referring to God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Alright? What did God do? He called us to a holy calling and saved us. Or we could say He saved us and called us. Was this, and here's why well, the portion that I think is, is important to this paragraph, was this calling because of our works? No. This calling was and salvation was not because of our works. Not for anything foreseen in man. What then was the cause of this saving and holy calling? God's own purpose and grace was the cause of this salvation and holy calling. Where does this grace find its substance? This grace comes to us in Christ Jesus. What does this, where does this grace find its temporal origin? Before the ages began. This grace is pre-temporal. You see what, what you do there. That, that, that's a helpful way to study the Scriptures. But the point is that it's, salvation is not because of any, any of our works or anything in us. It comes to us by grace, the substance of which is Christ, given before the ages began. We can't add anything to something that has its origin in eternity. Now, we could ask, do all men receive the grace of God in Christ Jesus? No. So then, are all men recipients of this salvation and calling to a holy calling? No. This is a special work of God's grace. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here we see that all of salvation, including regeneration, is by grace. None of salvation is of our own doing. All of salvation is the gift of God. None of salvation is a result of works. 
None of it is, uh, no part of the regenerating work of God follows on or is dependent upon any work or thing that we do. It's all of grace. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he does not and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So in this text we have two types of people, the natural person and the spiritual person, or we would call them the Christian, the lost person and the Christian. Can a natural person understand spiritual things? No. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Can a natural person understand with their fallen and corrupt faculties the spiritual truths contained in a preached gospel? No. They are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So then, how is the only way that a natural person can come to a spiritual understanding of spiritual truths? That natural person has to be changed from a natural person to a spiritual person. A change of nature is required. And what is a change of nature called? Regeneration. Ephesians 2.5 even when we were dead in our trespasses, speaking of God, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. In what state were we before God made us alive? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Okay, there's a more simple question. Were we alive before we were made alive? No, we were dead in our trespasses. If the effectual call is what transfers us from death to life, does the effectual call come to dead people or to living people? All people already spiritually alive. The answer is dead people. We were dead in our trespasses and then we were made alive with Christ. So then how do spiritually dead people hear a call to life. Well, the call itself makes them alive. And they respond. John 5, 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Catechize the text. Who will hear? The dead will hear. Who will live? Those who hear. What will they hear? The voice of the Son of God. Will those who live, will, will those live who do not hear the voice of the Son of God? No. Those who hear will live. Now, this verse does introduce a, a, maybe a, a caveat into the whole who, does, who gives the calling, God, and in particular God the Father, because here it says they're going to hear the voice of the Son of God. Um, if I had to quickly justify that language, I would say probably the voice of the Son of God could be uh, viewed as almost synonymous with the messengers of Christ preaching the gospel, the Spirit of Christ coming and doing the work. But the point is, it is dead people who hear, and those who hear are made alive. Ephesians 1, 18-20. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places." The point there is that the power with which God works toward us is the same power that He worked in raising Christ from the dead. Now, is this power comparable to anything that we already have in ourselves? No, we have not any power. Is the power that God used to raise Christ from the dead, is it lacking somewhere that we might need to come along and give aid to that power? No. It's the power of God. So those are just some... Uh, more specific considerations to the effectual calling as it deals with the elect as they hear the gospel and how it works itself out. The second thing addressed is 
the application of the effectual call to special cases. Paragraph 1 explained that the effectual call of God makes use of means, namely the Word and Spirit, the preached Word and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God takes the opportunity of the preached Word. So here's the question. What about those who do not have access to the preached Word either because of natural or providential limitations. And paragraphs 3 and 4 reference these cases. Paragraph 3 discusses what I'm calling natural limitations. Infants and the severely handicapped. So notice paragraph 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how He pleases. Now, we have to be sensitive in these cases. We also may not allow our emotions to dictate our theology or to drive our theology. Notice what the confession says. And notice what it does not say. First, elect infants. Now think about that. Think about why this language is used. We could ask, who will be finally saved? What label could we place on that group that will be in glory and will spend eternity with the Lord. We could call that group the elect. We could also say the universal church, the elect. Everybody who will ever be saved is in the category of the elect, no matter how old they are. So we have here the reference to elect infants. Now the confession does not say all infants are elect. The confession does not say no infants are elect. It clearly asserts or, or implies a biblical fact. If they are elect, they will be saved. Is that all infants? Is that most infants? The confession doesn't say. Because the Scriptures don't say. Here's what we know. God is good. God is just. On that day when we see His face, and we are made like Him, and we see Him as He is, there will, be, there will not be one tinge of disappointment in understanding all of the plans of God. Now, does that mean on that day we will see, how about that? He saved every infant that died in infancy. Maybe. We don't know. And the Scriptures do not say. And so the confession leaves it at that. Elect infants. Is that all of them? We don't know. But we do know that God is good and that God is just. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how He pleases. Now what's, what's the point of bringing this in here? Because we're, we're in a chapter on effectual calling. The language, the assumption seems to be that at least some infants are in that number of the elect. The, I don't think you can read this and say, well, you know, those Reformed Christians, they believe all babies go to hell. I don't think that this, this would be here if we believed that. And I don't believe that. So what's, what does this have to do with effectual calling? Remember, effectual calling comes by means of the preached Word and the Spirit of God. Infants cannot, inside the womb or outside the womb, they cannot, with their natural faculties, receive and comprehend the preached Word. So then we ask, what about them? How are they saved? The elect infants, how can they be saved? And the, the Scripture reference that is given is John 3, 3, 5, 6, and 8. I'll just read John 3, verses 3 through 8. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So our Lord makes it clear to see the kingdom one must be born again. Being born there is the language is being born of water and the Spirit. Born from above. A spiritual birth. Anyone of any age must be born again. Inside the womb, outside the womb, no one will see, no one will experience the kingdom of God apart from the new birth. Why? Because in our natural condition, from our natural generation, we are in Adam. So there must be a new birth. So the confession is saying, if an infant is to be saved, the elect infants, those infants who, who cannot receive the outward means of the preached word, if they're saved, their regeneration must take place in what we could call an abnormal way. And the way is simply by the Spirit, when and where and how He pleases, and that's all we know. so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. I would say under that category would be the severely mentally handicapped who have never been able to, to comprehend the truths of the gospel. The confession seems to imply there will be some of those who are elect will be born again of the Spirit when and how and by whatever means He chooses, however He pleases, and we'll see them in glory. And I would also add severely physically handicapped, so maybe it's not a mental problem, but maybe they, they can't hear and can't see, whatever the, the handicap might be, they're unable to receive the outward ministry of the Word. If they're to be born again, then there must be another abnormal means that God uses in those special cases, but that's not the, the normal way. The subject of infants is often used against the reform. We would call it the biblical doctrine of salvation. Usually infants are brought in against our, a straw man usually of our position. But the subject of infants are used. Rarely does anybody talk about the mentally handicapped. I've never heard anybody say, well, you know, those Calvinists, they believe all the handicapped people go to hell. It's always infants. Why? Because they know that the, the subject of infants is a especially sensitive subject and it pulls on the heartstrings and immediately turns people against whatever that straw man position is. Again, I don't think you can read this confession and walk away saying, well, they believe all the babies go to hell. Um, because it specifically references elect infants. I don't, I don't believe that all babies go to hell. God saves who He saves His way. And we have to be okay with letting God be God. If we're not okay with letting God be God, it don't matter how old we are. So those, that's paragraph three, those special cases naturally unable to receive the Word. And then the fourth paragraph, the non-elect who are subject to providential limitations. And there are two groups named here. First, there are the non-elect who actually hear the gospel. So here's a new category. Paragraph four, others not elected. All right. Do we know who these people are? No. They don't, they don't have any markings. They don't have a, like a little twinkle in their eye. There's, there's nothing about them that we can say, ha, 
I notice that you're one of the non-elect. We, we don't know who these people are. The confession, again, is just establishing a reality that there are people who are not going to be in heaven. So we can call them the non-elect or those others not elected. And this reminds us that the effectual call is a work of God upon men. And the effectual call in this reality, whether it's infants, whether it's the handicapped, whether it's uh, those who hear the preached gospel, whether it's those who don't hear, have never heard the preached gospel, those things don't affect our responsibility, which is the external call. The preaching of the gospel, that's where we come in. So we're not looking. Spurgeon said, um, if, I, if the elect had a red stripe up their back, he would walk around pulling up shirts to look for. But we don't have that. The same is true with the non-elect. There's nothing we can look for and say, oh, well, you're not elect. I guess I won't share the gospel with you. We preach the gospel to every creature. Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the Word and may have some common operations of the Spirit. Now pay attention here, because while we might not know who the non-elect are, this is probably describing people we know, and could very well be describing people in this room. They are called by the ministry of the Word. That is, they are invited by the preached gospel. And there we have a confessional support for invitations. We believe in giving invitations, preaching the gospel, inviting men to come to Christ, commanding men to come to Christ, pleading with men to come to Christ. We believe it. They are called by the ministry of the Word, and these people have some common operations of the Spirit. Over against the special grace that we saw in paragraph 2, these are common operations. The text references Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. We'll stop there. Notice, these people have fallen away. So they're not Christians. They fall away after having been enlightened. They've been given some spiritual understanding of spiritual truth. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've experienced. A taste is to, to experience personally. The heavenly gift shared in the Holy Spirit. They have experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in some way. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've heard it preached. They've found it to be truth. They've, they've felt its power. They've felt conviction from the Word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come, which I believe means they have experienced what takes place in the gathered assembly of God's people, a taste of heaven. They've, they've sat through it. They've experienced all of these things. And after all of that, they fall away. This can happen. It does happen. But these common operations are not synonymous with effectual or irresistible grace. Think about Balaam. Think about Saul. Think about Simon Magus. Men who were not regenerated, but we could say they tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Saul prophesied, was filled with the Spirit and prophesied. Tasted the powers of the age to come. They had been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit. Balaam, and here's, here's really one of the best evidences. Balaam's donkey was used to speak the words of God to him. Well, that donkey was not regenerated. God used that donkey and said, okay, I'm done with you, donkey. He wasn't regenerated. And then Balaam himself then goes and proclaims words that we have in our Bible. Spirit-inspired words out of his mouth. And yet he was not converted. Simon Magus, here's the gospel. He, he believes, I want to be baptized. And then right after that we find out he has no share or lot in, their, in the ministry because he was not regenerated. We have to understand this biblical category or really just a, a, a truth of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is not bound 
by some external obligation to regenerate everyone in whom He works. He's, he's God. He's sovereign God. He can do whatever He wants with whomever He wants, and He can walk away. Use somebody, raise them up for a time, and let them go. He does not have to regenerate a person. So these people come under these common operations of the Spirit. Yet, the confession says, not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Notice they are not effectually drawn. Because if they were effectually drawn, they would be saved. They neither will, that is they don't want to, nor can they, they don't want to, therefore they cannot come to Christ. They receive the external call of the preached gospel, but they do not receive the internal effectual call of God. And we cannot say that that is God withholding the grace from them because He doesn't owe it to them. They're rebels. They reject it. They don't want it. They, they want nothing to do with it. And none of these people would, would you come up to later and say, ask them about this, and they would say, you know, I really wanted to be saved, but I talked to God and He said He wouldn't let me. No, they rejected it. They, they walk away. In a worship service where the gospel is preached, what makes one person to respond differently from another? The effectual call of God, which includes regeneration. It is not an act of faith on the part of one and the lack of faith on the part of the other. That's not what makes them to differ. It is the effectual call of God, and faith is the product of the effectual call. Scripture references, Matthew 2, 22, 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Coming right after the parable of the wedding feast. Went out, beckoned everyone to come. Anyone who will, come. Everyone come, everyone come. They get into the wedding feast. You, sir, you don't have your wedding garment on. You're out of here. Many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 13, 20 and 21. With reference to a common operation of the Spirit... As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. This is why we have to watch out for people who are completely oblivious to the gospel, hear it one time, and all of a sudden, there's, there's no struggle, no wrestling, nothing. They're just, all right, I'm on board. Tell me what to do. That's not typically how the ministry of the word works. They immediately receive it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the Word, immediately he falls away. That person heard the Word, received the Word with joy, endured for a while. How long is that while? Six months? Three years? We've been a church almost eight years? Nine years? See, th this, this kind of passage is what... Um, should make us fearful when even one of our own numbers seem to begin to drift. And we begin to think, well, they've endured for a while, but that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean they're regenerate. They endure for a while, and then tribulation or persecution arises, and they fall away. They were never born again. John 6, 44, 45, and 65. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The granting of the Father would encompass within it hearing and learning from the Father, being taught by God. Everyone who's taught by God will come. Those not taught by God, though they might hear, they do not come to Christ. I'm going to skip over the first John passage for the sake of time. We'll get to now the non-elect who never hear the gospel. What about people who never hear the external call of the gospel? The confession says, Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved. Be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. This would be a reference to probably pagans who remain in the darkness of their pagan idolatry. Remember, the effectual call comes by means of the Word and the Spirit. No preached Word, no effectual call. Acts 4.12 
There is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It does not matter the sincerity of a man's religion. If he is not clinging to Christ, he is not a Christian. This is why I'm often a little skittish about all of the stories of the Muslims who have these dreams of this man and they, they're all of a sudden they're Christians. You never hear anything about repentance. You never hear anything about a confession of sin. It's always, I saw and now I live differently. They walk according to some religious pathway. But you never hear them talk about uh, what we know the Spirit actually does when He convicts a person of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and brings them to salvation. There must be a clinging to Christ for salvation. John 4.22, Jesus said, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. From the Jews. That is, salvation is in Christ. The faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is revealed in Christ. There's salvation in no other. John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we learn that the knowledge of God and of Christ is the only way of salvation. It does not matter how sincere a person is in a false religion. Without Christ, there is no salvation. So in conclusion, the sad reality is that those who never hear the gospel will perish without Christ. Our job is not effectual calling. Our job is the outward call, the external call, and we have to be diligent in our duty and trust God to do His job. Now, when we talk about those and we begin to think about those who've never heard the name of Christ, perishing apart from Christ for all eternity, that's a, a fearful thing, a heart-wrenching thing, and it ought to be. But the eternal suffering of those who never hear the gospel will not be as severe as those mentioned in, at the beginning of paragraph 4 who hear and taste and see and experience and yet remain in their rebellion against God and never come to Christ Himself. Their suffering will be worse than the pagans who never heard. So this is a reminder that we have to examine ourselves. There are those who endure for a while. Get on your knees in prayer and ask, Lord, am, am I one who's only enduring for a while? I've not suffered much tribulation. I've not suffered much persecution. The time hasn't come for, for me to show forth my true colors just yet. Would, could that possibly be me? Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. I, I don't take any of these thoughts lightly. Every time I read this stuff, I'm in prayer. Lord, is that me? And I make my calling and election sure. So do that. Examine yourself. We'll close in prayer and we'll stand and sing one more song.